Hello, incoming freshmen. Welcome to Education Land, Miami-Dade North, your premier semi-accredited four-year budget university. My name is Phil, and I will be your campus tour guide on this lovely Thursday afternoon. Please, disregard the ungodly shrieking of the lightning detection sirens. They are either being tested or are broken. Once we secure the necessary funds from alumni and other donors, all sirens will be mechanically modified to warn of impending danger with smooth jazz and the hushed lullabies of young Icelandic mothers, gently and affectionately persuading everyone to avoid tall, isolated objects and to seek shelter immediately. Located on 0.7 scenic acres in the Shops at Palmetto Plaza Retail Outlet Mall, Education Land Miami-Dade North has been South Florida's number one choice for discount intellectual rigor since 1997, when we first leased the model living room of a Thomasville furniture store for our initial classroom space. Since then, we have expanded to 17 different locations throughout the mall, from the School of Music in the parking lot, to the Institute for Political Social Work in the Water Fountain, to the College of Engineering in Macy's Leisure Wear, to the Division of Continuing Studies on top of the indoor rock climbing wall, and, if the proposed food court annex goes through as planned, we will be at 18 by August of 2010, with the welcome addition of the School of International and Public Affairs in the seating area of Panda Express. But, before I go any further, allow me to tell a little bit about myself. For as long as I can remember, I have dreamed of going to college. Whereas my classmates aspired to become professional athletes and movie stars, playing point guard for the Chicago Bulls, batting 400 for the Cubs, fighting Sylvester Stallone in the nth iteration of Rocky, I wanted nothing more than to be an ordinary undergrad, backpack on shoulder, class schedule in pocket, walking briskly between different alphanumerically designated locales, MM-105, LC-207, F-329. In class, as my teacher lectured on how to write a cursive S, or how a bill becomes a law, or how to please rather than anger the Lord with our genitals, I lost myself in elaborate, detailed fantasies of moving into dorm rooms, eating in fluorescent-lit cafeterias, standing in slow-moving, labyrinthine lines to register for classes, evaluate transfer credit, secure financial aid, appeal academic suspension. In high school, I spent untold hours in the Career Resource Center thumbing through the college admissions brochures, poring over every glossy picture of oak trees and ivy and freshly mowed quadrangles, the way other boys ogled unclothed flesh and their fathers playboys and hustlers and barely legal paralegals, pressing the brochures of public research universities and liberal arts colleges and Jesuit Catholic seminaries and certified cosmetology institutes intimately against my face and inhaling deeply the smell of 100% post-consumer recycled chlorine-free paper stock transforming into the aroma of residence hall sofas, decades-old lecture chairs, dorm room carpeting saturated with processed cheeses, and cheap American beer. And then, magically, miraculously, I found myself here 
education land, instructing you lovely incoming freshmen with your eyes aglow and your hearts aflutter and your cargo shorts abrim with breathments, fake identification, and free condoms from the student health clinic to follow me as we begin the first leg of the tour, past linens and things and embroidery and more, to the public phone booths that serve as our school of communication. For those of you who haven't yet settled on a major, the School of Communication, for only the price of a local or occasionally long-distance phone call, offers comprehensive programs in such diverse disciplines as answering machine studies, 20th century dialing, erotic telemarketing, and touchtone performance. In addition, the school's renowned celebrity impersonation department offers both majors and minors in Clint Eastwood, Marlon Brando, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Christopher Walken, Kermit the Frog, and Elmer Fudd. The esteemed international faculty, predominantly based out of India and the Philippines, are all experts in their respective fields, from taking social security numbers, to taking first and last names, to taking dates of birth, and starting in the spring semester, their thrice-weekly lectures will be supplemented by completely automated TA discussion sessions, a computerized voice recognition menu guiding students step-by-step toward a fuller, more profound understanding of their required reading material. There are toll-free classes for students on scholarship, TTY-TDD classes for the deaf, and every February, the annual Phone Survey Symposium draws a swarm of distinguished guest lecturers, tackling timely and controversial subjects ranging from what is your political party preference to is the head of the household available. So, if you've ever been captivated by the haunting beauty of a chiming ringtone or the alluring, libidinously charged invitation to dial one for English, marque dos para español, then perhaps the School of Communication is the right call for you. Moving away now from the phone booths, we pass Fraternity Row, as you can plainly see by the Greek letters painted on the windows of Abercrombie & Fitch, American Eagle, and Polo Ralph Lauren. Although there is no sorority housing, per se, the Panhellenic Council hosts regular mixers, spirit cheers, and charitable semi-nude chair dancing benefiting the blind in the panty section of Victoria's Secret. Students interested in the tradition and camaraderie of Greek life have a wealth of options to choose from, from the historically white Pi Kappa Alpha to the historically white Phi Delta Theta to the historically white Sigma Alpha Epsilon. And for particularly intrepid souls, there's always Kappa Alpha Alpha, the most mysterious and secretive of the fraternities, who, legend has it, relocated to the sewers after losing their charter for hazing with cotton polyblends at Old Navy. Though the reports have never been confirmed, it is rumored that the subterranean brothers of Kappa Alpha Alpha can be heard through the sewer grates in the parking lot. Late at night, the sounds of tribal drumming and ritual sacrifice and beer pong eerily wafting to the Earth's surface by the handicapped-only spaces, the commercial loading zone. There is the squealing of pigs, the bleating of goats, chanting in Yoruba and Creole, voodoo, santeria, the school song. Supposedly, this continues for weeks, the otherworldly noise building in intensity and shamanistic fervor, 
until it reaches its primal, cacophonous zenith during Pledge Week, when the siren song of inebriated laughter and sororal squealing and Bob Marley's greatest hits compels impressionable freshmen to pry open manhole covers and descend into the mall's unsanitary underworld, never to be seen or heard from again. Remember, this is only rumor, but maintenance personnel have discovered miles and miles of beer bong tubing snaking throughout the city's sewer mains, the longest network of gravity-delivered alcoholic refreshment yet known to man. Our next stop is the Bed Bath & Beyond Athletic and Convocation Center, located on a small traffic island in the parking lot, but before we head over, I'd like to share just one more short anecdote about myself. My junior year of high school, I felt unstoppable. I had it all. 4.0 GPA, 1,000 hours of community service, presidencies in the Key Club, the Science Club, the Neurosis-Inducing Parental Expectations Club, the Ritalin-Fueled Overachievement Club. I had extracurriculars, work experience. My college application essays elicited tears and proposals of marriage. And yet, the final piece of the puzzle, the standardized achievement test, four hours of multiple-choice, erase-all-stray marks, shade-in-the-best-response sadomasochism, eluded me, taunted me, decimated my confidence and shattered the foundations of my most essential beliefs. God, universal truth, the intrinsic dignity and goodness of humanity. I had only to look at a scantron sheet to be presented with identical godless rows of unshaded, alphabetically labeled circles replicating themselves like some hideous third world virus, and I'd go into convulsions, foam at the mouth, speak in dead languages, the test proctor shouting for someone to stick a number two pencil in my mouth so I didn't swallow my tongue. I'd see analogies and break out in hives. I'd see sentence completions and go into anaphylactic shock. Fill in the blank, grid in your response, which best describes the passage's theme. All of the above, none of the above, eeny, meeny, miny, moe. From what foul circle of hell were these questions forged. After bombing all my previous tests, carted away each time by EMT personnel before I'd even made it to the longer critical reading passages, I had one last chance, one final desperate gasp of conquering my anxieties and translating my intelligence into Scantron form, of accurately quantifying my value as a person into a single, statistically normed, algorithmically aggregated four-digit number. Alas, I proved woefully unequipped for the challenge, and instead suffered a complete nervous breakdown, hospitalized in a psychiatric ward for close to a year where I muttered the SAT's provided mathematical formulas to anyone who would listen. During my long, arduous recovery in the psych ward, I had to relearn everything. How to walk, how to tie a shoelace, how to answer even the simplest questions without responding A, B, C, D, or E. My motor functions were erratic, temperamental. I'd lose control of my arms and learn to eat a hamburger with my toes, and then I'd lose control of my legs and learn to pedal a bicycle with my chin. And yet, after all of this, 
the trauma, the physical therapy, the sponge baths, the institutional gelatin, I emerged from my year in the Thorazine-sedated, antiseptic wilderness to find, buried in a stack of rejection letters, a badly pixelated, poorly photocopied college admissions brochure from Education Land, saying, Give me your failures, your underachievers, your huddled masses yearning to take English Comp 101. And so, just a few required forms and signed liability waivers later, I arrived here, in beautiful Miami, Florida, where I now invite you to accompany me to the small triangular island in the parking lot where, four, five, six years from now, you will experience the thrill, pomp, and circumstance of graduation. Unless, of course, you are suspended, expelled, or murdered. Yes, graduation. That time-honored rite of passage, when the names of our future leaders and difference makers are spelled phonetically on index cards and pronounced more or less correctly by a mid-level university employee into a microphone. For years I have dreamed of this day, have simulated it, rehearsed it, imagining myself walking in militaristic single-file lines, sitting for hours on an uncomfortable metal folding chair, hearing my unwieldy Polish surname reverberate from staticky, buzzing speakers, beckoning me towards some festooned, triumphal stage where I stride boldly and collegiately, shaking the university president's firm, moisturized hand, and receiving, in addition to a mass-produced mumble of congratulations, my diploma. Of course, at Education Land, the diplomas don't confer an actual degree, but are instead degree vouchers, which can be redeemed for a legitimate Bachelor of Arts or Science when non-governmental agencies process the necessary reams of paperwork, and the university's accreditation proudly metamorphoses from semi to full. But, rest assured, there will be robes, and mortar boards, and tassels, tassels every color of the rainbow, crimson, azure, chartreuse, periwinkle, tassels even outside the visible spectrum, infrared tassels, ultraviolet tassels, x-ray tassels, and for the rest of your life, no matter what happens, no matter how many undercover cops you proposition for hand jobs, no matter how many illegitimate children you conceive in railroad tunnels, no matter how many waffle houses ban you for life for inappropriate conduct involving maple syrup, whipped cream, and strawberries, as long as you wear that elegant flowing robe, that square academic cap, those infrared goggle detectable tassels, wearing them while you sleep, while you shower, while you go to the supermarket, the drive through pharmacy, the DMV, the psychiatric clinic, the post office, the wave pool, the opera, the ball pit, the morgue, every waffle house waitress, every police badge prostitute, every relative stranger you've made sweet love to amidst blaring train signals and flashing railroad crossing lights and rumbling iron tracks will have to agree. This is a college graduate. So, that concludes our tour for the afternoon. I hope you found it both entertaining and enlightening. 
you have any further questions, please don't hesitate to ask. Due to insufficient student housing, I'm here all night. I hope everyone had a relaxing and fun-filled weekend. As for myself, I took the missus to the Anthropology Department Halloween party, both of us dressed as Australopithecines, although we quickly evolved to Homo habilis so we could use crude stone tools to open a bottle of wine. On a somewhat related note, I'd like to extend special commendations to the offensive line of our school's defending conference champion football team. I was pleasantly surprised to hear they have been acquitted of all charges. In today's lecture, we will explore the socioeconomic disparities that exist between the hunter-gatherer and the gatherer-hunter in contemporary American society, two peoples who, until as recently as the late 1990s, were considered indistinct from one another, their hyphened cognomens completely interchangeable, merely mirror image permutations, both indicating the same non-pastoral, non-agricultural lifestyle. Of course, recent ethnographic studies, most notably Janice Body's fieldwork with the Bushmen of Chicago's L-Train and Claude Levi-Strauss's seminal publication, Indigenous Peoples of the Suburban Iowa Walmart, strongly suggest that not only are the hunter-gatherer and the gatherer-hunter dissimilar, they are markedly so, one consistently reaping the benefits of the 21st century through upward mobility within the American agrarian industrial system, as the other, hindered by xenophobia, superstition, and systemic discrimination, is consigned to lumber, loincloth, at the far fringes of respectable society. Your TA Todd will now cue the slides. In this first slide, we see a typical urban hunter-gatherer riding a BART subway car in San Francisco, his fellow passengers unconcerned with his dangling genitalia and raised spear, his tribal tattoos, his novel anatomical piercings, everyone fully aware that the spear isn't meant for them, but for squirrels or pigeons or perhaps the famous sea lions of Fisherman's Wharf. See how they continue to read the San Francisco Chronicle, undisturbed. See how they kindly allow their naked co-passenger to take up two full seats with his gathered foodstuffs. Now, in the next slide, we see a gatherer hunter in a similar environment, a dart train in Dallas, Texas. Notice the faces gripped with panic. Notice the transit cops with guns maliciously drawn. 
what is the explanation for these divergent responses to the same pre-agricultural mode of subsistence, the same public flaring of sex organs, of poison-tipped spears? Is it a subtlety of movement? A wayward pheromone? A faint but provocative linguistic tick? Our next set of slides shows hunter-gatherers and gatherer-hunters in the workplace. First, an international bank in Miami's financial district, a hunter-gatherer lying in wait for ceiling-crawling geckos during his 45-minute lunch break. Observe how his co-workers go about their filing, their faxing, unconcerned with the primal battle for survival, man versus lizard, taking place only five paces from the copy machine. They accept and understand he is merely fulfilling a biological need, the same need they address when ordering Cuban sandwiches and cafecitos from the diner across the street. Next, we switch to a gatherer-hunter, stalking for protein-rich insects in the cubicles of a Cincinnati, Ohio insurance company. Here, the employees do not execute their professional duties, but instead set off the emergency alarm strobe lights intermittently bathing the commercial carpeting, the receptionist standing on her desk with a fire extinguisher, spraying wildly, her face contorted in terror. What happened to the tolerance of diversity, the forward-minded cultural relativism of the investment bankers? Why is the hunter-gatherer, but not the gatherer-hunter, regarded as a contemporary, an equal, Perhaps not in customer service ability, or Microsoft Word proficiency, or mastery of the all-in-one inkjet printer, but in the eyes of the Constitution, afforded the same basic rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness enjoyed by everyone not traversing the office carpeting on their colorfully decorated bellies. Our final flurry of slides concern the widening gap in social strata that hunter-gatherers and gatherer-hunters have been allowed by our society to inhabit. We first see examples of hunter-gatherers in positions of great professional and political power. Lawyers, doctors, city alderpersons, county supervisors, circuit court judges, wielding their stethoscopes and gavels proudly. Their people's two million years of non-hierarchical egalitarianism ensuring their clients, patients, and constituents are treated with fairness and justice. Now look at the gatherer hunters, unemployed, uninsured, driftless, despondently rooting through garbage bins, St. Vincent de Paul donation boxes, hunting stray dogs, domestic and feral cats. Have they not the same skill set as the hunter-gatherers? The same prowess with club and spear, medicinal plant and wild root? Why then are these noble people, differentiated from their hunting-gathering brothers and sisters by mere word placement around a hyphen, relegated to the dark, musty basement of society with the cockroaches and the vermin and the horrific groans of an ancient not-up-to-code furnace? while their partners in subsistence occupy the lobby, the mezzanine, the penthouse apartments. How, in today's enlightened cultural landscape, do we let one band of non-agriculturalist, chipmunk-pelt-wearing nomads dream the American dream and restrict the other to teeth-gnashing nightmares of the humane society wiping out their winter food supply? 
If there is one thing you should take away from today's lecture, besides, of course, the warm glow of basking in my unparalleled pedagogical genius, it is that the next time you see a gatherer hunter on the street, at a Walmart, in a TGI Fridays, hunting for frozen flank steaks, gathering ketchup bottles and artificial sweetener packets when the waitstaff aren't looking, take the time before you reach for your pepper spray, your rape whistle, your concealed handgun, your brass knuckles, to ask yourself, what if this were not a gatherer hunter, but a hunter-gatherer? The answer, my dear students, may prove enlightening and is worth 10 points of extra credit in 500 words or less. So, that marks the end of our time together for today. I realize my lecture was brief, but I was recently rejected for tenure, and my shift at Sunglass Hut starts in 15 minutes. If there's anything you didn't understand, your TA Todd will be more than happy to assist you. Otherwise, I can be reached in the usual fashion, in my office, alone, under cover of Darkest Night. Make sure you're not followed. Your next exam is Thursday. Hello, class of 2008. Hello, faculty, trustees, Burger King employees on smoke break. It is with inestimable pleasure that I stand before you on this momentous occasion in such an elegant, commercially zoned parking lot, with its Honda Civics gleaming in the sun, its spaces shrewdly staggered diagonally, standing where so many other great men have stood, as well as great women, and parking attendants, and regular patrons of famous footwear and Radio Shack. It is with immeasurable pride, with a tender warmth radiating through my heart, that I wear this heavy woolen robe in the 90-plus South Florida heat, the fabric sticking to my skin, the sweat raining down my brow, as I speak into an intermittently functioning microphone and lovingly clutch my honorary doctorate of letters good for a free facial waxing at Beauty Express, and half-off all maternity wear at Old Navy. When I was invited to speak at today's commencement, dear graduates, I prepared, as so many others have, a litany of pithy quotations and proverbs relevant to today's ceremonial rite of passage. Shakespeare, Aesop, Oscar Wilde, George Bernard Shaw, each delightful aphorism commenting humorously and or poignantly on your nascent emergence into the real world, your maiden voyage into the privilege and responsibility of adulthood, 
supplemented by charming, self-deprecating anecdotes from my youth, and a liberal sprinkling of such axiomatic morsels as follow your dreams, listen to your heart, keep reaching for that rainbow. I carefully calculated the stirring of emotions, the incitement of tears. I wrote, acknowledge standing ovation and wait for spontaneous applause in the margins of my handwritten notes, confident of the Pavlovian clapping sure to be triggered by my uplifting collected wisdom. But on the drive over, graciously chauffeured by the Dean of Arts and Sciences, who, as it turns out, also operates a city taxicab, I was struck as the traffic snarled, the car horns blared, the passing billboards spoke in sex and Spanish, by a strange foreboding, an ominous vision, if you will, of the future, washing over me like a biblical epiphany, a visitation from fortune-telling angels and the bumper-to-bumper hell of Northwest Lejeune Road. It was all so clear. The shapes and contours of yet to come, flickering before me like a home movie and a reel-to-reel, dancing lambently before my eyes. Except, dear graduates, despite my meticulously handwritten list of optimistic maxims, your horizons are endless. Anything's possible. Aim for the moon. Even if you miss, you'll land amongst the stars. The future did not look like a college admissions video, smiling students walking leisurely down red brick paths, laughing alabaster-toothed with attractive classmates on the quad, discussing thesis projects with authoritative yet warm professors, the robust exchange of knowledge and ideas, of profound nods and over-accentuated hand gestures. No, the future did not look like that at all. Quite the contrary, in fact. The future was utterly terrifying. In the future, the modern educational system as we know it will be replaced by a plethora of heavily mass-marketed smart drinks in a variety of flavors and packaging styles, delivering to consumers' brains, in eight fluid-ounce serving sizes, the same amount of information normally conveyed over an entire semester of a three-credit collegiate course. With just one bottle of cherry contemporary feminist theory or a single aluminum can of lemon-lime topics in early American literature, three revolutions in the Atlantic world, anyone can experience, in addition to an explosive fruit-flavor sensation, the intellectual stimulation of a rigorous lecture-based program of undergraduate academic study. Although critics will decry the overwhelming popularity of these so-called liquid textbooks as a cultural and pedagogical travesty, a shallow simulacrum of traditional study-based learning, their voices will be drowned out by those who enthusiastically assert that smart drinks are America's great equalizer, providing our nation's impoverished, disenfranchised underclass with the knowledge and training they so urgently require, an Ivy League quality education available for mere pennies an ounce to anyone with an esophagus, or for those who enjoy their liquid academic refreshment intravenously, a feeding tube. And, even if the entirety of academia were against high-fructose carbonated instruction, 
deploring its desecration of the high-minded ethos behind the modern university, its circumvention of 1,000 years of collegiate tradition, it would hardly matter, as the irresistible clarion call of advertisers placing diet issues and gender and sexuality in the ample cleavage of swimsuit models, caffeine-free theory of the novel, and action-packed summer blockbusters involving car chases, orgies, and the apocalypse, will already have the overwhelming support of public opinion, supermarket shoppers across the country clamoring, insatiably, for more artificially sweetened history, more low-calorie literature, the grave warnings of sociologists and American studies professors, but faint whispers, inaudible from their distant ivory towers. For a time, it will appear as if America is on the threshold of a bold new epoch, its citizens privy to an unprecedented wealth of knowledge via the sweet, sparkling refreshment of caramel-colored beverages. Instead of baccalaureate degrees, GPAs, studies abroad, magna cum laudes, young adults will start off their resumes with their diets, listing the various academic concentrations they consume in a typical week. At the same time, however, with the replacement of elementary school with smart drinks for kids, the accelerated education of infants with the ever-popular advanced concepts in kindergarten baby formula, the nation's youth will find themselves both with swarms of conflicting 12-ounce ideas and a cornucopia of extra time on their hands, leading to an epidemic rise in high-concept, Dadaist, surrealist, postmodern, post-structuralist vandalism, urban centers riddled with meta-graffiti commenting on its own dichotomous significance of public blight versus creative expression, national monuments from Mount Rushmore to the Lincoln Memorial labeled with larger-than-life nutrition facts, great swaths of the Midwest buttered with country crock margarine by troubled adolescents for no discernible reason. In addition, due to the smart drink's high sugar and calorie content and pharmacologically suspect chemical additives, America will see an exponential rise in child obesity, juvenile arthritis, early-onset diabetes, male pattern baldness, growth of vestigial limbs, emergence of webbed feet, scales, talons, claws, forcing the smart drink companies to double triple their marketing efforts, launching series after series of humorous, nationally beloved ad campaigns claiming that their product offers the best taste and the most knowledge with a minimum risk of liver failure, hearing loss, birth defects, colon cancer, death. But the greatest danger, the most insidious, most far-reaching in its devastating implications is the export of American smart drinks to other countries. In the hardline Muslim world, for instance, which forbids sale or consumption of such brands as Orange History of Anti-Semitism and Sexuality, Gender, and International Human Rights Iced Tea, liquid courses on chemical and nuclear engineering will become popular, cultivating a new class of hyper-intelligent, scientifically and mathematically brilliant youth 
who denied any access to wild cherry world literature or diet behavioral sociology of sectarian and international conflict will be easily manipulated by delicious cola-flavored fundamentalist interpretations of the Quran into using their limitless knowledge of molecular and atomic structures to create a host of terrifying weapons of mass destruction unparalleled in their ability to decimate the depraved strongholds of the infidel. And even as suicide bombs go off in American shopping centers, restaurant chains, tourist traps, the corn palace, the house on the rock, the world's largest penny, the world's largest ball of twine, as the attacks become so commonplace they are reported with the same unsurprised tonal flatness given to car crashes, budget cuts, predictions of heavy rain, the American parents' relentless pleading with their children to give up smart drinks, to put an end to the madness, to return to the simple joys of reading dense psychology textbooks, falling half asleep in an acoustically unsound lecture hall, cramming all night for an organic chemistry midterm, are met with deaf ears. Their children, who possess a comprehensive but chemically unstable knowledge of everything from existentialism to the rise of the national idiom in Central European music to Mandarin, Chinese, Aramaic, and Swedish, have no interest in giving up their liquid intelligence to returning to the dark ages of slowly accumulated, slowly synthesized thought. Their generation's capacity for study has atrophied, its attention span reduced to a mere fraction of a second, and so their parents, who are you, dear graduates, distinguished class of 2008, can only flip through the channels, watching, with only mild interest, the flickering evidence of your planet's accelerating destruction. Or, I could be wrong, and your futures could be bright, spotless, immaculate, spreading before you infinite in their unimpeachable possibility, as I had written down in my genteel handwriting last night, in preparation for this momentous day. Perhaps you have absolutely nothing to worry about, besides where the best party is tonight, what outfit you're going to wear, who you're going to fornicate with, and in what style. Admittedly, after my grim intonements, my original closing has lost some of its luster, but I would like to read it to you anyway, if I may be so bold. The spirit-lifting parting words dreamt up before the vision on Lejeune Road, the heart-stopping taxi-bound glimpse of the apocalypse, when the road ahead seemed so much clearer, so much simpler. These words, brief and hopeful, inscribed in my now-foregone innocence, are as follows. Nothing will go wrong. Nothing will cause you sadness or pain. There is no need to change anything you are doing. Everything is, and will always be, just fine. There is no reason to fear dwindling natural resources, the ballooning of the world's population, the fatal destruction of the environment, the rise of global terrorism, the emergence of rapidly communicable, incurable, immune system destabilizing illness. None of this will happen. None of this is possible. Sit back, 
Enjoy yourself. Have a cold one. The future is yours. Don't listen to anyone who says otherwise. I thank you for your attention. You step outside and put a match to your cigarette. Try as you may, you remember things you've tried to forget. And the fireflies that encircle your heart blink silently. Seems it's eating you alive.